morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This verse of scripture in Hebrews is powerful, really. Uh, it's like a, a, a firecracker of truth. It just When I read it, it just kind of leaps off the page and kind of explodes in my face in, in a good way. But it's very, very powerful. Um, the first statement that is made here by the writer of Hebrews is, without faith, it's impossible to please God without faith. And so, obviously, the question is, well, what is faith? If faith is the essential thing I need to please God, then what is faith? Well, faith is, uh, it, it comes, the English word faith is bound up in some uh, Latin and, and uh, early Greek. And uh, th those original words come to the, the meaning to bind something together or to unite something together. And so faith is really you're binding yourself to something. You're, you're committing your trust, your, your devotion. It's, you know, we get the word faithful. You want to be a faithful spouse, a faithful husband, a faithful wife. You're binding yourself to that individual in trust, in relationship. Faith Faith really is a relationship. You cannot have a relationship without trust. And you cannot have trust without faith. Faith is a firm persuasion. It's not always based on evidence. In fact, faith, faith more often than not is based on something you hope or believe, not something necessarily that you have evidence for. In fact, the Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things you do not have possession of or you do not have or in, in, you cannot see with your own eyes. It's a conviction that you believe something. And you may not really look at it this way, but the truth is you have faith in your car. You do. Because you go out in the morning and you put the key in the ignition and you turn it without really doubting or worrying that it's going to start. And you only realize that that faith has been violated when the car doesn't start. And then you're like, what? You broke my confidence. And then from that point forward, you begin to, you, you know, you begin to have trust issues with your vehicle. Is it going to make it today? Is it, I wonder if it's going to start today. But, but up until that point when your car starts to give you trouble, you had faith in the car until it broke faith with you and, and kind of broke expectation. So, you know, in, in many ways, you have faith in a lot of things. I, I believe you have to have faith in almost anything that you, you, you believe or you trust in because nobody has 100% evidence of anything, really. Most of the time, even in a, in a court of law, uh, a, a case is based on evidence, right? But sometimes the evidence can, can point in the wrong direction. So evidence isn't the be-all and end-all. Eventually, at some point, you've got to make a decision of trust. You trust or believe or have faith that this is the right decision, that this is the right choice. And so God says, if you're going to come to me, and if we are going to have any kind of interaction together that's going to be meaningful, where I am pleased and you are blessed, then you're going to have to start with faith. I love what the writer of Hebrews says, that you've got You've got to believe that he is. See, God is the God that is. I love that. I love that statement. God is the God that is. He's not the God that was 
or the God that will be. God exists in the perpetual state of is. Because the Bible teaches us that God is existing outside of the realm of time and space. And that gives me comfort because I may not be able to see God, but I can believe that God is. I cannot fully explain what God is doing, but I can, I can trust that God is. I may not be able to fully understand his ways because, as the Bible says, his ways are higher than my ways. As the heavens are from the earth, so are his ways above mine. But I, I don't have to understand his ways to know that he is. Just like you don't have to understand how nuclear reactions work, but you just flip on the light and know, hey, the light is. Electricity is flowing through my house. I don't really know how it got there. I, don't, I couldn't tell you where it goes and how it gets there, and maybe some of you are smart and you could tell me that and inform me. But, but the fact is I go to the light switch and I go, oh, the light is. It's working. It's on. That's God. God is. I can't explain him. I can't fully understand him. I can get to know him better. I can learn more about him. But ultimately, I've got to accept no matter at what stage of my relationship that I have with God, that God is. Now, I love the question people ask when they say, well, where did God come from? And I like to answer that because, because when I read my Bible, I realize that God didn't come from anywhere. Because he existed before there was a somewhere to come from. So God didn't come, God came from nowhere, and he arrived at no time, and he reached into no thing and created the universe. That's the answer. Where did God come from? Well, who made God? If I have to answer that question, we'll be here all day, because then you'll want to know who's the who that made God. And who's the who that made the who that made God? Until we'll be here 55 days from now saying, who's the who that, 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 the who that's the who that made the who that made the who that made God? God is, is unmakeable because he is the maker. He exists. The Bible says he's all present, all powerful, and all knowing. He reached out into nothing and grabbed something and said, let there be and there was. Genesis 1 begins with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, there was nothing but God, and he spoke, and something came into being. Now, if you try to read the book of Genesis as a book of science, you'll, you'll struggle. Because it's not super scientific. It wasn't written to be scientific. The book of Genesis, often people go there to begin their debates on creation versus evolution, and, and, and really nobody has evidence for either because nobody was there when it happened. <laughs> it, it, can I just burst the scientific bubble this morning? You've got to have faith for whatever you believe in. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you've got to have faith for that because you weren't there. If you believe that, that evolution created the heavens and the earth, and a bunch of random events came together to, to form the earth. Well, you've got to have faith for that because you may have trickles of evidence here and there or trickles of proof of this, that, or the other thing, but ultimately you were not there, and you've got to trust something. I choose to trust in God. How, how powerful is he? Well, I mean, if you just think about how big the world is, uh, I, someone asked the question once, 
how much does the earth weigh? And I said, well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because what I'd like, like to actually know is where did you get the scale to weigh the earth? <laughs> and can I see a picture of that, right? So uh, you really can't weigh the earth because the earth is suspended in space. And, and weight is more or less determined by gravity, right? Gravity and how it pulls down on you determines weight, really. So you can't really measure the Earth in weight, but you can measure it in mass. And so if you, if you weighed the Earth according to the Earth's own gravity, the Earth would come out somewhere in the vicinity of 13,170 billion trillion pounds. To put that into context, think of a male African elephant, bush elephant. They tip the scale at about 13,000 pounds, okay? So one trillion elephants would weigh 13,000 trillion pounds, okay? And so the Earth weighs one billion times more than that. The Earth is heavy, right? It, there's a lot of mass in layman's terms. And the Bible tells us that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Job tells us in Job 26.7 that, that God stretched out the north over the empty place and hanged the earth on nothing. God took the earth and just put it out into space. He hung it on nothing. Now how do you make 13,170 billion trillion pounds of mass hang on nothing? I struggle sometimes to hang up my shirts in the closet. How did God hang that on nothing? I'll give you the answer. He did it by the word of his power. You want to know how powerful God is? All he has to do is speak, and his word can uphold not just the earth in its 13,170 billion trillion pounds, but he upholds the universe, the Milky Way galaxy, and all of the subsequent galaxies and stars and universes in, 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 in our, our, our existence. God upholds it all with the word of his power. So God is, and he is a big God, and he is a powerful God, and he is far greater than what we could imagine, what we could see, what we could comprehend. But, you know, to talk about what God is is also to talk about what he is not. Because I think it's important for us to know not just what God is, but what God is not. And the Bible tells you both things. The Bible tells you in Numbers 23, 19 that God is not a man. God is not a man. We refer to God with eyes, ears, hands, feet. We talk about the hand of God. We talk about the the eyes of God and the ears of God. He hears us when we cry. He answers by and by. But God is not a man. He does not lie, the Bible says. And he is not a human, so he does not change his mind. God is also, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 33, he is not the author of confusion. God does not author confusion or discord, or disunity. God is the author of peace. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 tells us that God is not 
unjust. In other words, he values and holds in high regard justice and righteousness. God likes seeing things done the right way. And you might say, well, that's funny because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of justice in the world today. You, you didn't have to go very far on CTV News this week to find out there's some pretty horrible injustices going on right in our neck of the North American woods. From Texas to Toronto, scary incidences happening all around us, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just in our continent, and I, that's not even all of the injustices, murders, uh, corruptions, uh, everything. It's overwhelming to look at the injustice of the world and you say, but if God is not unjust, where is the justice? And those are valid questions. But you need to understand that, that God also does not show favoritism. So when it comes time to judge the world for its actions, the people who've made choices that have impacted lives and torn people apart and destroyed lives, God is going to recompense and he's going to bring about justice to every single one of those things. The Bible also says God does not forget. God is not forgetful. He remembers. He knows. And whether that be good or be bad, he just remembers. He knows. And the only thing that trips up God's memory is the blood of Jesus Christ. God has a perfect memory, except when it comes to my sin. God doesn't remember my sin. The Bible says he's taken my sin and moved it as far as the east is from the west. And the illustration there is you can never travel east until you get to west. If, if you keep going east, you're always going to go east. You'll never stop going east. You'll never meet up to the place that says you are now west until you turn around and go the other way. And, and so the Bible says as far as the east, if you could separate the east and the west and stretch them out on a, on a linear point, you could never get there. But if you could, that would be as far as God has separated us from our sin. Well, how do I get that? If God is all of these things, if he's not forgetful, if he's not unjust, that means he, he's going to even call me on my, my own choices and actions, and, and he's not confused, he remembers, he knows, he's not a man, so he's not going to lie about me, he's not going to change his mind. When it comes to my record of sin, when it comes to the record of my life, and by the way, he doesn't show favoritism, so I may be Jew, I may be Gentile, I may be rich, I may be poor, I may be a politician, I may not be. I might just be an average Joe, a janitor, uh, a school teacher. I may be a, uh, a lawyer. I may be a doctor. It doesn't matter. God's going to judge me on the same level that he judged everybody else. He doesn't show favoritism. So, so what do I do with that? What do I do with that? God is. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 4, 24, that God is a consuming fire. So we've talked about what he's not. Let's talk about what he is. He is a consuming fire. The, the reference there is talking about how God is so powerful that if you were exposed to his raw presence, you would not be able to stand. You would be consumed because he is a consuming fire. But I love the verse that follows that that says God is also merciful. While he may be a consuming fire, in other words, there is a goodness and a severity to God. There is a terribleness about God. I mean, to speak the worlds into existence, to speak the sun into its massive burning ball of flaming gas, 
to be able to have that kind of power to just speak and let it happen, that, that must be a terrible kind of power. I would not want to be on the bad end of that kind of power. But God is not all-consuming power without tempered mercy. God also is giving. I couldn't, I was shocked when I did this study. I, I didn't count how many verses, but I went through the concordance. I just typed in, show me all the verses that say God is. I want to say what the Bible has to say, but specifically God is. And the amount of times that the phrase God is giving came up, floored me. God is giving. His nature is to give. His nature is to pour out. His nature is to supply. His nature is to give and to give and to give and to give, often without any promise of return, without any promise of, uh, 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 of supply. He's just going to keep giving and giving and giving and giving because that is who God is. And that gives me comfort because if I know I've got this track record with God of my past. Then I, I'm really hoping he's going to give some mercy to me. And that brings us full circle back to the verse we started with in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For if you come to God, you must believe that he is. But he doesn't stop there. What is God? God is a re Order of them that diligently seek him. God is a rewarder. He rewards those who diligently seek him. Can I put it this way? If you have doubts about God, bring them to God. If you have questions about God, bring them to God. Go to the word. Talk to your pastor. Talk to someone who knows God, who knows the word. Bring your questions to God. Bring your concerns to God because he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In this life, you will have questions. In this life, you will have, have, have concerns. You will have, have all kinds of things come up in your way. But God is. You've got to just... Rest on the fact that he is. But he wants to reward you for diligently seeking him. How do I diligently seek him? You do it often, repeatedly, and with interest. You keep coming back with your questions. Every question is a good question. There's no dumb questions with God. There's no stupid questions. I would go so far as to say there's there's really no sacrilegious questions. I've, I've had people say, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, Pastor, but and they, they ask me anyway. And I, I try to reassure them. I said, well, you were brave because if you thought that you'd get in trouble for asking, you, you asked anyway. It uh, shows a little courage. But, but don't be afraid to ask because God isn't afraid of your questions. You may not have all, I may not have all the answers, but God will reward you for diligently seeking him. Because he is a rewarder. He is. He's a rewarder. In life, there's many questions. There's many questions. But God wants to reward us 
when we come to him with our questions, when we come to him with our concerns, when we come to him with our sins. And what do I do with my sin? Well, the Bible says you, you need to repent, first of all. You, repenting means turning around. And I'm going to close with this, Sister Bryce, if you'd come. Repentance means turn around. And it's a big word, but, but think of your, yourself going in this direction. And to repent means you're just going to turn around and, and walk a different way than you walked before. So repentance isn't getting everything right or everything perfect, but it's a, a mental and physical acknowledgement. I'm turning my life around back to God, and I'm going to diligently seek him. It starts often with asking God to forgive you of things you know you did wrong, you know you struggled with, or you know you messed up on. But you ask him to forgive you, and then, and then you respond to that repentance by being baptized. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, the washing away, the cleansing of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is God's Spirit that comes to live in your life and help you from that point forward do what is right and do what is good and do what pleases Him. And no matter where you fall on the spectrum of your walk with God, whether you are coming to God today or you've been with God for many, many years, you need to understand the fact that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Can we stand this morning? And before we close the service, I wonder if you'd just take a few moments to seek the Lord.